Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast. I'm Norman Swan. And I'm Tegan Taylor. Today on the Health Report, the first of a new series on substance use. This week, what you need to know about ice, crystal meth. Whether early diagnosis of ovarian cancer through screening makes a difference. And the search for an Alzheimer's disease treatment is as controversial as ever. The US Food and Drug Administration has approved the first drug for Alzheimer's disease in nearly two decades. It's called aducanumab. But not everyone is welcoming the decision. While some clinicians, patients and their families think the drug, which costs tens of thousands of dollars a year, provides hope to those living with disease. Others are worried there's not enough evidence to prove it benefits patients and that putting it on the market will only stall the development of other drugs and potentially waste enormous amounts of money. Amongst those concerned are actually scientists who advise the FDA. And here in Australia, authorities are considering whether to also give aducanumab the green light, as Sarah Sedgi reports. For people living with Alzheimer's disease, there are few options they can turn to in medicine, and those can only help manage some of the symptoms. So the promise of a drug that can also target the disease process itself is welcome news. But the decision of the US health regulator, the FDA, to approve the drug aducanumab came as a surprise to some. Dr Jason Carlowish is a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and a director of the Penn Memory Centre. He was also a site investigator for the drug's clinical trials. It's a very terrible disease for a number of very unique ethical and social reasons. And I understand the desperation to discover a therapy to try and slow the disease or even prevent developing in the first place. But, you know, desperation is is what's needed to motivate funding and all the other social and political things we need to do. But desperation ought not to guide the way we interpret the results of science. Aducanumab is an antibody that's given to patients intravenously. It targets beta amyloid plaques in the brain with the aim of triggering an immune response to reduce the buildup of the amyloid. The buildup is a feature of Alzheimer's disease. The FDA approved this drug in the US through an accelerated pathway that can be used if the drug has an effect on a surrogate of the disease that they think could benefit the patient. In this case, the surrogate is the reduction in amyloid. But if you're living with Alzheimer's disease or have a loved one affected, you want to know their memory and thinking is clearer and their quality of life is improving. Dr Carlowish says it's not certain reducing amyloid in the brain can deliver that. The FDA's decision was a surprise because there's not been a discussion with an advisory board or with their own statisticians about whether the reduction in brain amyloid is an adequate surrogate to uh, represent clinical benefit to patients. I do think, and many do feel, that this is a leap. It's a leap of inference that reducing amyloid translates into benefit to patients. Aducanumab showed early potential, but two phase three trials were stopped in 2019 because it didn't appear to be effective. But later, the developers of the drug Biogen added more data and found that the Alzheimer's disease-related decline of a number of patients in one of the trials was slowed. But reanalyzing data at a later stage is not considered best practice among most clinicians. In the second trial, which was identical in design, patients didn't experience a significant improvement, regardless of what dose of the drug they were on. In November, an independent advisory panel to the FDA overwhelmingly agreed the evidence for aducanumab so far falls short. 
The FDA's decision to approve the drug despite their objections has led to three of those members resigning. The argument that Biogen and selected members of the FDA made uh, was based on analyses that required selective exclusion of certain participants, namely people who were, quote, rapid decliners and other analyses. They were able to put together the argument that the 10 milligram dose of the drug, in fact, was effective. The FDA advisory board that reviewed those data did not agree and voted nearly unanimously against the claim that the drug uh, was effective. In the months that followed, uh, the FDA requested some additional data from Biogen. We don't know what those data were, but they led to the decision that was issued that approved the drug. The FDA has asked Biogen to conduct a post-approval clinical trial to verify the drug's effectiveness. If the expected benefit isn't proven through these phase four trials, the drug can be removed from the US market, but that's not a certainty. Dr Carlowish is also worried it could delay the progress of other potential treatments. Take the perspective of a person with this disease. It's a horrible disease. Take the perspective of their family member. Of course you would take it. You trust the system. And if someone then came along and said, well, no, no, don't take that drug. Enroll in my clinical trial to develop a new drug you wouldn't join the trial. And so I do think that putting out a drug with uncertain benefits, clear risks and notable costs is going to really put a sand in the gears of moving forward to discover a drug that has a clear benefit. The side effects of aducanumab include brain swelling, though this was often asymptomatic in patients in the trials. Neurologist Associate Professor David Darby was involved in those phase three trials, which included participants from here in Australia. There is excess amyloid, not just in the brain itself, which is what we are trying to remove and hoping that that will be associated with clinical benefit. But there's also amyloid deposited in some patients in blood vessels of their brain. So when the antibody, we assume, is coursing through the uh, arteries in those people, uh, it can diffuse through the or into the wall and it can attach to some of that amyloid and then lead to what we think is a, uh, an immune reaction to that amyloid, which can lead to some leakiness of those blood vessels. And the blood vessels can leak either blood, which would be a small hemorrhage, or they can leak fluid, which is much more common. In the trial, about 41% of patients overall in the 10 milligram per kilogram dose, that's the high dose, developed one or other of those complications. The interesting thing is that about 70% of those patients had no idea that they had symptoms, nor, nor did we. And it's only about 30% of patients that develop symptomatic side effects. And they're things like a headache, dizziness, visual disturbance, or they can be worse and, and if it's more severe and be, say, confusion. All of those patients who had that um, complication, though, recovered from it. While he understands the concerns of some of his peers, he's optimistic this drug will help people. This is a, I think, a major milestone for us in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it will be the first time that we have a potentially disease-modifying therapy. And it is my hope that, that we move the uh, removal of amyloid earlier on in the disease course, because in theory, if we can remove amyloid when people have no symptoms, that's going to mirror the successes that we've had in the preclinical research, particularly in, in animal studies. In a statement, the Australian and New Zealand branch of Biogen says the approval of the drug is an exciting step forward and it hopes it will transform the treatment of people living with Alzheimer's disease.
Aducanumab is being reviewed by Australia's medicines regulatory agency, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Marie McCabe is hopeful it'll be available here soon. She's the CEO of Dementia Australia. This, for the first time, brings real hope. And for many people, they've been involved in research over that time. They've been disappointed by the number of failures that have occurred over that time. And for the very first time, there's something here that looks like it will slow the progression of the disease. For our advocates, that is people living with dementia, they are very positive about this. They're, of course, cautious. It comes with risks and with side effects, as do most drugs. At the heart of this is the concern there's not enough options for people with the disease, something she hopes will change in the future. The more research that goes into this, the better, because we do need to be able to increase the options available for people at different stages of the disease. In a statement, the Therapeutic Goods Administration says aducanumab is being considered under the standard evaluation pathway. Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt has indicated that if approved, it will be made available on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. Sarah Sedgi with that story and maybe more disappointment to come, unfortunately. This is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. A little while ago, while I was looking at the latest evidence on alcohol and other drug use, I discovered that a huge amount of research had passed me by, including topics I know interest you, like how can parents prevent drug use in their children. Professor Marie Thiessen and her colleagues at the Matilda Centre at the University of Sydney are at the cutting edge of some of this work, including ICE, also known as crystal meth or methamphetamine, one of the most misunderstood drugs of abuse. And that's what we're going to cover in this, the first of an occasional series, which will also eventually have its own podcast in longer form. Jack Nagel knows firsthand how difficult it is to quit methamphetamine. Jack's life was hugely affected by ICE, and he now, courageously, is prepared to talk about it. So I loved it at first and it was really like a big lie. It was never the using of the drug for me that was the problem. It was what came along with it. So the mental health... Well, that's always the case, isn't it? Well, I think for most people it is and, and definitely was for me. And the mental health aspect initially was the biggest thing for me. So with methamphetamine use, I always say what goes up must come down. So when I would use, I would go up incredibly high and and that's when I felt good. But it was actually when I was coming down and didn't have the drug where I experienced the most problems, become incredibly depressed. That's often where I would have some of the psychosis episodes. And by psychosis, Uh, what sort of delusions were you having? My psychosis were complete blackouts, which was actually quite embarrassing because I would black out and I would be obviously... So there'd be a period of time where you just couldn't remember what had happened? Correct, correct. And then the people around me and friends and things would just tell me all sorts of sort of strange things that I would do, which caused me a lot of embarrassment as well. And it all just started to feed into each other. And that's where the cycle of addiction really started happening for me because as all those different shameful experiences and moments and depressive feelings and anxiety and all that sort of stuff started to feed into one another, I started to need an escape. And so instead of it being something that I used for fun, it was something that I used to escape my reality and my pain. And all my relationships just became completely broken because I was lying to people, stealing off my family, all those sorts of things. I'd really just kind of become a shell of the person that I was before and and was just completely at that stage, just living to use really. What brought it to an end? I'd had lots of what you would call rock bottom experiences and that never stopped me using. But in the end, I had a 
really um, massive bender where I'd at that stage being crossing all the moral boundaries that I had before and luckily enough for me, my mom and the rest of my family in the background were, you know, searching for rehabs and things. So when I went home, she let me in. I just got really broken in that moment and I asked my mum for help and I was able to get an assessment and start that process very quickly. And how long before you were clean? Even though I was completely broken and wanted help in that moment, I got up the next day and you know, sort of said, I don't, yeah, I I said, I don't want help anymore, you know, and and wanted to go a different direction. Lucky enough, I was kind of talked into it. And I actually had something really profound at the treatment center happen to me, which is I met someone else a little bit like myself that was in recovery from a similar addiction. And they were able to intimately describe to me how they were thinking and feeling. And I had sort of like a psychological shift in that moment that maybe I wasn't alone and that I could do it too. And that was really pivotal for me to be able to change. And I was able to become clear and off drugs from that time on. You know, I have a career and I've been able to marry and having a child. And, you know, if you saw me in the street, you'd just think that I was an everyday member of the community and I'd had nothing go on in my life. The usual guy shackled to a mortgage and the whole catastrophe. (laughs) That's right. I've become a total squarehead. Um, Yeah, a lot to be said for it. (laughs) That's right, that's right. Jack Nagel, great story. Professor Marie Thiessen is Director of the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. ICE is a particular interest of theirs. Crystal methamphetamine has really been increasing in prevalence amongst Australian methamphetamine users over the last 10, 15 years. But it's still not that common, is it? Look, it might surprise you to know that dependence on methamphetamine, Australia has the highest rates of dependence on methamphetamine in the world. Really? Yes. This is a hidden problem, Norman. So the rates in the population from our household surveys are about one in 75 people are reporting that in the last year they used meth. That's a lot. That's quite a lot, yes. And it's more in the country as well. The other source of information is looking at how much methamphetamine is in wastewater, and that is indicating to us that in the country there's higher rates. Now, it could be that there's more people using or the people in the country are using more. It's just a quantity thing. So we don't know. So while crystal meth has captured the market from other methamphetamines, has it captured the market from other drugs? It was some period of time ago that Australia ran through a heroin drought in sort of early 2000, 2001. And that was the time that we really changed in terms of the landscape of what drugs were being used. So we did shift from heroin over to greater use of crystal methamphetamine at that time, and it's continued. And grown, obviously. And grown. And the number of people using in the last 12 months is still one in 75. And that's been staying pretty stable. The challenge, as you've picked up, are the number of people who are using crystal methamphetamine. And that's gone to nearly regular users. It's nearly half. And is it more addictive than the other forms of methamphetamine? Yep. It's definitely more addictive. Why? Crystal methamphetamine and methamphetamine generally is highly addictive. It's an amazing drug at increasing the levels of the pleasure neurotransmitters in our brain. So we increase neuroadrenaline, we increase dopamine, but it then tricks our brain in feeling that we need to have that. And then your brain is asking for these neurotransmitters and these pleasure drugs, and you're primed. The only way to get them is to use methamphetamine. This has got the reputation of being a bad drug. Mm -hmm. Is it a bad drug? 
Once you find yourself in the position of being dependent on methamphetamine, it is absolutely a bad drug. And it is a bad drug because it impacts you at every level of your life. In what way? How to just describe the, it? Yeah, the impact particularly that people talk about with methamphetamine, the incredible desire and craving, the desperation to use that drug in order to have those pleasure um, neurotransmitters hitting in your brain. And then, unfortunately, the impact of methamphetamine is often psychosis, it's often so aggression. So delusional behaviour, you're hearing things, yep. seeing things. Seeing things, hearing things that are not there. So it is Paranoid intense. psychosis? Paranoid psychosis. Which is a risky form of psychosis because yes. you think the world's against you and you can get quite aggressive. Yes, very risky and very difficult, as you can imagine, for family members who are trying to care for people. Now, a cardiologist told me that when he's on call at weekends in a major city teaching hospital, he's seeing young people with heart attacks and heart disease secondary to amphetamines and cocaine. Yes, and that is also the physiological responses and the impact on the body. So 100% correct that you increase, you know, death rates from crystal methamphetamine and from methamphetamine are increasing. The other area where they're increasing is suicide. About 18% of people who die from methamphetamine dependence is through suicide. And is that because it induces a mental health issue or you had a mental health issue before you started taking it? That is the perfect question, Norman Swan, and it is a very big challenge. It's going to be both. We do know that a lot of people come to crystal methamphetamine and methamphetamine use with a long history of risk factors like trauma, like depression, like anxiety disorders. And then you have a drug that you take that then can increase psychosis and other mental health problems. Now, ice is used in the gay community. Gay men use it a lot, from what I can gather. But they say to me, gay men say to me, well, but it's recreational, we're in control. Is that true? Yeah, so we've been talking about the really hard end down at the methamphetamine dependence end. So while I said, you know, one in 75 Australians will say they've used it, then about half of them will only use it occasionally. Clearly, the safest way not to get into trouble with is methamphetamine not is not to have it at all. There's a lot of stigma attached to this. There is huge stigma attached to this, both self-stigma, so people who use methamphetamine are really hard on themselves, and the community is incredibly nervous and there's huge levels of discrimination against people who use methamphetamine. So it makes it hard to come forward and admit you've got a problem? It absolutely makes it incredibly difficult. And one of the things that we've been working on is, like, how can we break that stigma down? In the past, we've done it by saying, we'll give just lots of information. If we give lots of information and tell people that treatment works, then they'll come and we'll break down that stigma. That's not working. What is working is bringing in people who've had lived experience of methamphetamine, working with the community to design information that reaches them and then tackles that stigma. So your peer group? Your peer group. So like Jack's story. Jack is incredibly powerful. And Jack has been working with us on ways to engage with people who have lived experience of methamphetamine and 
they can bring to light all of the wonderful information. Now, as always, I'm hopelessly out of date. You know, so I had been under the assumption, which was, I think, true five, six, seven years ago, which was nobody really had a convincing treatment for methamphetamine addiction. Yeah. Whereas heroin, you could go on to methadone replacement or yep. suboxone. Yes. Alcohol, there are medications and there's ways to get off alcohol. But yes. for methamphetamine, there wasn't. I understand that I'm wrong about that. Norman, you're wrong and right. Okay. Oh, what a relief. Well, a I, relief? No, I, no, I'd like that to be a treatment, so I'm not, I don't want to be right. I want yeah. to be wrong. You, I know you want to be wrong. We do have phenomenal treatments, talking therapies, cognitive behaviour therapy, motivational enhancement with great evidence. The problem is, as I described, this drug is really hard. And so we lose people. They come in, they start treatment, but we lose them because the cravings are so intense. There's no replacement therapy to actually remove the cravings. Mm. So you talked about heroin and opiate replacement, and that has been incredible, a game changer in heroin dependence because people can come into treatment and they stick at it. We don't have that yet in methamphetamine. So we've been trialling stimulants. But unfortunately, the results really haven't been as positive as we'd hoped. There are two Australian trials, one in long-acting stimulants. So this is like the treatment you would give to a child with ADHD? Like ADHD treatment, Ritalin. Ritalin. Which is a milder amphetamine. Yeah, it's really trialling stimulants to try and as a replacement. Now, there's also another drug on the scene called N-acetylcysteine. And we also have an Australian trial looking at whether that will have an impact as well. Because we're trying that in alcohol, aren't they, as well? Yes, there's a couple of trials in alcohol. So somebody's listening to us, as inevitably there will be, and they've got a problem or they know somebody with a problem. What should they do? Definitely reach out. Definitely reach out. And that is the real tragedy of methamphetamine dependence in this country. It is not treated like every other health problem, and it should be. Unfortunately, people will reach out and they will find the stigma. We have a lot of resources available for people to help them navigate their way through the health system. So hop online and look at our online portal, Cracks in the Ice. That's a good way to start to get the right language in order to work your way through the health system. But in the end, it's still going to be go and see your GP. Thank you. Thank you very much, Norman. Professor Marie Thiessen is Director of the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. We'll continue this series in a couple of weeks here on The Health Report. Ovarian cancer can be a nasty tumour that can go long go undetected. It can be hard to diagnose and challenging to treat, although that is steadily changing. The mantra in cancer is that early diagnosis is important and can increase survival and cure rates. And the holy grail in ovarian cancer has been whether there's a way of screening for it that could improve outcomes. Cancer specialists around the world were pinning their hopes on a long-term study to find out if early detection through screening would save the lives of more women from ovarian cancer. But they were dismayed to find out that it didn't. Professor Ian Jacobs was one of those involved in the trial. He's the Vice-Chancellor of the University of New South Wales and by trade, a gynaecological oncologist. Welcome to the Health Report, Ian. Good evening, Norman. Good to speak with you. What were the tests you used to screen for ovarian cancer in this study? We used two approaches. One was an approach using a biomarker measured in the circulation called CA125, which was interpreted in a sophisticated Bayesian algorithm looking at the pattern over time. And the other test was ultrasound scanning, transvaginal ultrasound scanning, the same sort of scanning technology as is used in gynaecology and obstetrics. And this was all comers? These were women, just healthy, normal women? Or or were they women at risk? 
this this was a a massive general population uh, randomized trial of women um, from 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 the normal population, two hundred and two thousand women in the UK, uh, recruited in thirteen centres across the UK, screened for uh, twelve years, and then followed up after that. And it was a randomized trial. And the outcomes you were looking for were earlier stage of diagnosis and and saving lives. Yes. Well, the the ultimate aim and hope was that the screening strategy would save lives and reduce mortality. Uh, there were a lot of other endpoints. We, we showed that screening was safe, it was acceptable, it had a very high detection rate, over 85% of women with ovarian cancer were detected, and it did shift stage. But the deeply disappointing finding at the end of 20 years of, of this trial was that it did not reduce mortality, it did not save lives. So why was that? Is that because early stage is still bad news if you've got ovarian cancer or there weren't enough people who shifted to early stage? What's the story? Well, I, I think there is a, an enormous amount of work to do now analysing the data from that massive trial. The screening definitely shifted stage. And as you say, the question is, why did that, that not save lives? So the women who would have had advanced stage disease were detected early as intended, but they still seem to have had the outcome they would have had without screening, which gives us quite a lot of insight into the behaviour and nature of ovarian cancer. What it means is that to, to have an impact on mortality, we are likely to need screening tests which push back earlier diagnosis even further. We believe that the screening strategy... Um, had a, a brought forward diagnosis by about 18 to 24 months. Perhaps so, there's a need to do to bring it forward even further. So basically, you'd, you knew that you had ovarian cancer longer, but it didn't change the survival from diagnosis. That's the tragedy, yes. And so in that sense, it's similar to pancreatic cancer, unfortunately, at the same time. Now, what does this say? Because there's been a push, women can detect symptoms which are a sign that you may may have ovarian cancer, like bloating, feeling nauseous, um, bowel changes, that sort of thing. And they've been encouraged to talk to their GP about it and go off and get tested. Has that symptomatic approach made any difference to the outcome of ovarian cancer, or we don't know yet? Well, I think this trial does have some implications for um, efforts to encourage women to give particular attention to symptoms. It's important to put this in the context that there has been steady progress in, in managing cancer of the ovary over the last 25 to 30 years. There have been advances in diagnostic tests, new preventive, preventative approaches, refinement of biomarkers, better chemotherapy, better surgery. So it's really important for women who have symptoms to access care as soon as they can. Even but if it we, means the surgery is less radical, for example. Perhaps. But what we, we should be clear that... The, the women who had their cancers diagnosed in this big trial were largely symptom-free. So they were being diagnosed before they had any symptoms. So if that did not improve, reduce mortality, it is unlikely that attention to symptoms will reduce mortality. Now, a proportion of women who get ovarian cancer have a familial tendency. They have one of the BRCA genes, the BRCA1 or BRCA2, does this have any relevance for them or or what? The This trial, 
was a randomized trial and specifically excluded the women who are in that very high risk group who had a BRCA gene abnormality or a very strong family history of ovarian cancer and breast cancer. There was a separate trial for that group of women. It was not a randomized trial because it was felt to be unethical to randomize women either to screening or no screening. The results of those trials, and there were two in the US and, and one in the UK, showed very high sensitivity, a stage shift, and it made surgery uh, easier and, and could be less aggressive. Uh, now, that, so there is, there is a, a question as to whether or not screening may still have a role in some of those women. The gold standard for those women is preventative surgery, but some women want to delay surgery or avoid surgery. And for those women on a fully informed basis, there may still be a role for screening, but that, that'll be a, a topic of, of further discussion and debate. Ian, thanks very much for joining us on The Health Report. A pleasure. Thank you, Norm. And Professor Ian Jacobs is Vice-Chancellor of the University of New South Wales, but in a previous life he was um, a gynecological cancer researcher and looked at ovarian cancer. So really interesting research there where it's a bit counterintuitive, Tegan, that um, early diagnosis does not necessarily make a difference, although there, you know, there may be nuances to that story, obviously. It's, it's, it's more like screening stuff. doesn't help. You know. Yeah, it's sobering stuff. So Norman, it's mailbag time now and I've got a few questions for you tonight, starting with this piece of feedback from Robin, who was um, is wanting to give a bit of nuance to some of the dental advice that we gave on a show on the 31st of May. Yes. So we, you know, I, I did say, by the way, I think I did say that my knowledge of dentistry could be written on the back of a molar. I don't think you did. but I think Robin's feedback illustrates the point. I think Robin perhaps knows slightly more than, than we do. So Robin was concerned with the inaccurate dental advice that we were that was provided, um, saying that there's a difference between dental plaque, which can be removed with a toothbrush, and dental calculus, which is the mineralised plaque, which is removed by your dentist. Dental plaque does need to be removed daily by brushing and flossing to prevent dental decay and gum disease. Dental calculus is removed by your dentist because it harbours bacteria and toxins, which can enter gums and cause an inflammatory response, leading to, I don't know how to say... Gingivitis. Gingivitis. It's one of those words I can spell but not say. Exactly. And so, um, and we also implied that... This is the story where you go to see the dentist and he says, your teeth are fine, but your gums need to come out. (laughs) Uh, And then we also perhaps uh, suggested that food directly causes decay. Yes, and what uh, it really the, it's sugar that causes decay, sugar in food that causes decay. And uh, decay is a plaque-mediated disease. And that's an allergenic plaque to cause that. So I don't think we recommended not brushing and not flossing. I don't think we did that. But we're, we, we're talking about plaque in relation to the, the, the record, the, the ancient record of teeth through the Paleolithic record and how our, um, our dental bacteria haven't changed that much. But I hear what you're saying, Robin. I will never again confuse plaque with calculus. And it also feels like perhaps a good uh, juncture to, to think about some new health report stories about uh, dental hygiene because it's obviously something that both of us could do with learning a bit more about, Norman. Yeah, well, that's right. But, I mean, I do a brush with a fluoride toothpaste. I don't spit out the toothpaste. I leave it in my mouth and I floss and then I get one of these interdental brushes and brush that and then I wash out. Whether that makes any difference at all, I do not know. 
Sounds like it does. Um, and make sure you're seeing your dentist regularly as well. Yep. Uh, Sue's got a question about a recent segment that we had with Dr. Alejandro Hoberman and the use of grommets in children versus the use of antibiotics to treat ear infections. Um, Sue's son had glue ear and was quite deaf in his preschool years, very negatively impacting his behaviour, probably because he didn't know what was going on for a lot of the time. And this, his ENT surgeon, this was in the early 80s, said, these are the children who, if left untreated, sit at the back of the class and don't do well. So he had grommets and her lovely little boy was back again. He later went on to get a PhD. So um, Sue's saying, even though uh, Dr. Hoberman said there was no evidence of beneficial outcomes, she begs to differ. No, it's you know really good story to hear. And the to be clear about what that story said was it was really about going to early grommets. What he was really going on to say was that you can afford two, three courses of antibiotics and see how the child does. And he did say that if you know the child fails that, then grommets are a reasonable decision. So it wasn't that there should not be grommets. It's more that you're pretty safe to try antibiotics, and a lot of children will resolve. And a question from Patrick who wants to know whether UV sanitizers for smartphones are effective or a waste of money. Um, he's seen some sterilizer and wireless charger devices and wondering whether he should uh, spend his money there or not. Well, I'm not sure you should bother spending your money. You can just use an alcohol wipe to wipe down these things and it's just going to be as uh, as good as anything else. Your ultraviolet light does sterilise and kill the virus, but whether or not all the sanitizers do it equally well, I don't know, but you can be pretty sure that alcohol is pretty... Strong alcohol, like 60 or 70% alcohol, is very good at killing the virus, as is soap and water, but I suspect the smartphones don't stand much dipping in um, soap and water. I don't know if alcohol wipes charge your phone for you, though, either. No, I don't think they do. And one last question from Robin, a different Robin, asking about with the new guidelines on age for AstraZeneca, Robin wonders if there could be a relationship between blood clots becoming a concern in those under 60 because those people are now working from home, sitting in front of a computer all day with a lack of normal exercise. It's a good question. Um, but those kind of clots that you get from stasis, from not moving around, are a different kind of clot from the clot that you get with the AstraZeneca or Johnson vaccines which is best thought of as, a, um, as an immune reaction. So it's almost like an autoimmune disease where the vaccine causes um, antibodies to be created to the platelets, which make them more sticky and they reduce in number. Whereas prolonged um, sitting, say in a 24-hour flight when you used to do that, that's really because the blood isn't moving, it's staying still. And if, if the blood is sticky anyway because of poor diet or genetics or, what, or, or dehydration, then you can get a clot then. But it's a very different mechanism. And they usually happen in different parts of the body, don't they? Yes, it's mostly in the calves. Um, a deep vein thrombosis. Or, yeah, or the thigh, yeah. Whereas the blood clots that are associated with the vaccines tend to be more in the the brain and the the abdomen. They are, although there's a tier two disease where it is in the it, it is in the calf muscle and can go to the lungs, um, but it's not as it's not as severe a disease as it is in the brain or the abdomen. And you know, you could conceivably say that if if you got the clotting syndrome and you were somebody who was sitting around a lot, maybe you'd be more at risk of that. But it, it, there's no conclusive evidence to prove that one way or the other. Either way, standing up from your desk and having a walk around is good for your health. It's good. Absolutely, 100%. Well, it's all Especially from if our... you go around flossing at the same time. Well, exactly. Kill two birds. Uh, that's all we've got time for in our mailbag tonight. If you want to ask us a question, email us, healthreport at abc.net.au. But we'll see you next time. Yep, see you then.